where we're talking about what we call the riches of divine grace, God's things that he's done for you when you first trusted in Christ. I mentioned several of them to the children just now. I mentioned that you have a spiritual gift, that he gave you a new spirit when you first trusted in Christ. These are the things that God has already done for you. What do we do about it? Well, first thing you have to do is learn. We have to learn that these things are true because we wouldn't know unless God told us. We wouldn't know that we have these riches if God didn't tell us about them. And in part, that's one reason he gave us the word. So that we'll know the things that God has done for us. It's so easy to get hung up in your day-to-day life. And the things that you can see and touch. And the problems that arise. It's so easy to focus on the things of the flesh, as we call it. And I don't mean sin. I mean just tangible phenomena of life. It's so easy to get drawn into these things and to forget what Jesus did for you at the cross. It's easy to forget, therefore, who you are. And part of the intention of this study is to show you from the scripture what it says about you, if indeed you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're talking about the blessings of the new birth, the blessings of the new birth, and how we are the sons, the heirs of God, because of our position in Christ, our new birth. And we've turned to Romans chapter 8, where we spent a little bit of time after communion last Sunday, discussing the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you, that you have a life, that you're to live in the power of the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, that you have, um, therefore, an obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but to walk by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. And in, in Romans eight fourteen, we talked about that if we're led by the Spirit of God, we're sons of God. The identity that God gives you, that you're his son, is more emphatic on being his heir than on being male. Okay? It's not saying, ladies, that you are somehow uh, uh, androgynous or something. It's that you are heirs of God. And the inheritance that package that you have come to, 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 to receive that is yours by position is what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is kind of a subset of my position in Christ. But the language of being the sons of God is very important for us to get hold of. Now, this is how you study the Bible. You take a passage that the author writes and you seek to interpret it in terms of what the author's saying from his intention. You don't ask the impossible question, for example, what would the audience have understood? You don't know the answer to that because you weren't part of that audience. You weren't there, and you don't know what they knew. You can't. What would, what would the audience of a conversation or a, a speech you gave three months ago, what would they have understood? Well, where are you giving it, and who are the people, and what are their circumstances? It's almost impossible to determine what an audience would perceive right now, much less 3,000 or, two, in this case, 2,000 years ago. So we don't ask that question, what does the audience think? We ask the question, what does the author mean? And the way we get hold of his meaning is by what he said. And why I'm introducing this to you, this vital piece of how we study the Bible, is that um, when he says sons of God to you in Romans 8, Um, Verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. When he says that about you, and you, you could possibly do a word study and go off to the races and conclude all kinds of impossible things that aren't so. Let me give you an example. The B'nai Ha'elohim in Genesis chapter 6 looked on the sons of the sons of God, B'nai Ha'elohim, looked on the sons of men and saw that they were beautiful and took, took them as wives. And there were Nephilim in those days, Genesis 6. 
the sons of God in that context has a meaning, an intended meaning by the author. And almost all Hebrew scholars will tell you that that has to be angels. That has to be the, the, the beings that are present uh, in Job 38 when God created. It has to be this higher order creation of messengers and servants of God that are not born but created, these beings of light. They'll say that that has to be a reference to that order of, of creation. And some will say, historic, theolog, theologians will say, no, it can't be that. And they've got all these other views. But let's just take that angel interpretation of Genesis 6, the sons of God. What do you do with that in comparison to us now? Well, if you don't read the text in the intention of the author, if you don't let Paul speak for Paul, then you might uh, make an error and associate human beings with fallen angels. Let's do something even worse. When Jesus came to the earth, he identified himself as the son of man from Daniel chapter 7, but he also identified himself as the son of God. Son of God. Well, that's a reference to his deity. And the Jews got this because they said he makes himself out to be God by saying he's God's son, which is exactly what he was saying. Well, by God making us his sons, does that somehow confer to us deity as Jesus is God in the flesh of man? Do we get divinized? No, that's a heresy. That's an unthinkable uh, error because only God is God, and he always has been and always will be, and we do not become gods. We also don't become angels. But you can see how people get confused because they connect things that the Bible isn't connecting. The sense in which you and I are sons of God is not because we're angels, and it's not because we're God the Son. It's because that in Christ, the Son of God, we have been made his heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And Paul defines it right here in the passage. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption, huiothesia, the word in Greek, huiothesia, to set someone as son, being, a, being set or appointed as son, adoption. Not what you do with orphans in our culture, what you do with natural-born children that you confer the inheritance to, heir is the idea, I believe, that Paul is emphasizing. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I will illustrate this adoption today by virtue of Luke 15 here in a moment. But it's when the father puts the, grab the cloak and put the signet ring on his finger. Identify him as not just the child that I hug and love and embrace in his return, but set him up as the representative of the household, the father's son executing the desires and carrying on the family line that the father has established. So this is, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about Christian adoption. You have been marked out by your new birth as one who belongs to the family of God, as a child of God, and you have been designated as an heir with Christ the Spirit himself in Romans 8.16 testifies, along with our spirit, that we are children of God. Children. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Why do you have the Holy Spirit? Well, we said you've got a mission. If you tell me when I'm 13 or 14 that we've got a mission, I am not thinking about learning a foreign language and preaching the gospel in that foreign language in another country. 
If you tell me when I'm 13 or 14 that I've got a mission, I'm thinking military stuff. I'm thinking we're going to put on some camo paint, dark on the high points of your face, the, the things that stick out, light on the, on the, the deep spots, the light stuff to, br- to bring it out so that your face flattens uh, from the perspective of people. That's what that camo paint is about. I'm thinking web gear. I'm going to put on a load-bearing harness that's got a pistol belt and then these cool suspenders that clip onto my pistol belt. There's going to be canteens and canteen holders. There will be magazine pouches for, I'm 13, 14, I'm like, what's that for? Look forward to those days when they can put magazine, the magazines in them because the point of the load-bearing equipment is you have to carry a bunch of ammunition in a military mission. But I'm thinking in terms of we're going on a mission. We've got some sort of combat action. And that was fueled a lot by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Syl- Sylvester Stallone as a kid. I admit, we're going on a mission. Well, Paul mentions that mission, that sense of the mission, when he says, if indeed we suffer with him. You've been given the Holy Spirit because God has work for you to do. But it's the kind of work that's done on hostile soil in opposition to the reigning administration. And it's going to hurt if indeed we suffer together with him so that we may be also glorified with him. When Jesus was born, he entered the battlefield and he was crucified. He was hung on a tree and suffered for our sins by God's eternal providence and decree. But make no mistake, also through the machinations that God permitted and used of Satan and those deceived by him. Satan was instrumental in the human interactions that led to Jesus being nailed to a Roman cross. He possessed Judas and Judas betrayed Jesus in that possession by Satan. Make no mistake, Satan's doing what Satan wants to do. He's here to destroy God's son. And he doesn't know that his instrument of destruction is God's instrument of Satan's destruction. You can't outwit God. You can't outsmart God. He knows what he's doing. But my point is that this was through suffering. And God permitted it and God uses it. And your Savior is not only your substitute for your sins. He's also your exemplar. And don't go try to nail yourself to any crosses. That's not how it works. You walk by the Spirit and you find yourself... As God leads you in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, you find yourself walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley, you'll fear no evil because, because David says you're with me, because God is with you. It's going to hurt because you're at war. We're advancing under opposition, and you have a big target on your back that you got because of the new birth because I was born again to this new life in Christ and because God has designated me his heir in Christ. But then you have the future. The part of Romans 8 that everyone focuses on generally begins in verse 26. Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for us and then you have Romans 8:28 and get into the predestination and election stuff. 
and the, and the security implied by election. Election's a, a word for security. It's for one's irrevocable calling to belong to God. But before you get to that part where we get the drip pan verse of all trouble, I can apply first, or, uh, Romans 8.28 to everything. Before we get to that, Paul deals with eschatology, and it isn't often discussed. We've talked about it before, but I think it's really supposed to be our hope. The Apostle Paul and Titus calls the coming of Jesus for the church to call us up to the clouds to get our resurrection and then our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. He calls that our blessed hope. And it is focused in the person of Jesus Christ coming for us, as he promised to do in John chapter 14, 1 through 3. Let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he tells them of the place he's going to prepare for them, and he's going to come get them and bring them where he is. The first reference in, this, in the New Testament to the catching up of the church to be with the Lord Jesus in his Father's house in heaven. Our hope is in a person, and it is the future, and it is not the present, and it isn't the human being interrelations of politics, for example. Politicians of the last 30 years, well, before the last two or three, would talk about education as the great hope. I believe the, the Department of Education was a new creation by the Carter administration. And one of the platform things in the, um, in the campaign for the 1980 presidency for Reagan was that he would destroy or remove or disband go back on the bureaucracy of the Department of Education, the federal government taking over education, which is in every single case a local issue within a county, uh, within a, a, a city, within a state, that the federal government could trying to control education, he would, he would back off of that government overreach. Can't find it in the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. Education was going to be our savior. Education is the way that you pull yourself up from whatever mire you're born into and become something that you couldn't have been. Education is your savior. Where are we at today in education? Higher education, as they call it, bachelor's degree education, undergraduate training, is now in many, many cases, if perhaps not the, 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 the thrust of our culture, far less edifying and, and, and critical thinking than high school was 50 to 60 years ago. Your average college graduate is not able to reason from any basis of objectivity, but he or she can tell you what the popular view is, the accepted the view, whatever, that works pretty well, whatever the view is. Meanwhile, education rates, prices for, for higher education have skyrocketed to this ridiculous price beyond anything like inflation where it has become this big business that basically you're paying for your patent of royalty in order to take your piece of paper and say, I deserve a seat at the table because I was able to pay the $150,000 or whatever for education. And because it's the only way that someone can think they objectively know that you can learn something, which is not necessarily true anymore, but that's what it used to be, because they think they can do that, they take that diploma and they establish you in the training for your vocation that you're actually going to receive, which we all get, which is on-the-job training. Meanwhile, 
because it is the coin of the realm to get the piece of paper, it has become this ridiculously corrupt big business where we're teaching them less and less how to think critically and we're more and more charging ridiculous prices and establishing these people in these, these reinforced steel towers of ivory academic nonsense. And the big business of education is now the child grows up and begins his life with a $200,000 bill, $200,000 in debt, which is uh, more than anybody paid for a house for, you know, in our parents' generation. And they're straddled, they're, they're saddled, saddled with this debt, and along comes, we're going to solve it. We're going to cancel student debt by forcing people that didn't go to college and join the ranks to pay the loans of those students that did take those loans. And you can see the, the beginning of the, of the dissolution of, the, revol- of, the, of the, the republic. We have done what Tocqueville said. We have found out we could vote for ourselves from the coffers of, uh, of the taxes and it will dissolve our country. What am I saying? Pastor Dave, you're off on a tangent about the education circumstance in America. This was the great solution. It was going to be through education that people could improve themselves and improve their lot. And what we found is that it's not a hope at all. It doesn't do anything for you. 15, 20 years ago, I was talking to engineers that were getting students, uh, recent graduates from well-established and respected engineering houses like Texas A&M's very respected uh, engineering school in Texas. They would get graduates. They were highly recommended, good grades, you know, had taken some of their exams. They would get them in and talk to them and see what they knew about engineering, and they knew nothing. And they knew about mud hut construction in Africa or something when we're trying to actually learn to build real structures. And they had learned all this weird stuff, and this is 20 years ago, one example that comes to mind. And, and fast forward 20 years. My point is that education is no hope, doesn't solve any of the real problems that we face. And there is the apostle, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, prophetically Solomon, the king, writes, there is no end to the writing of books. Education isn't the solution, but reading the word of God is because you come to know God, and that's really the issue. The reason we started um, universal literacy in this country and it proliferated to the rest of the Western world the reason for universal literacy as, a, as a, a norm here in the colonies and then expanded to the nation was because the people that started the colonies had a book to read. And there is no question but biblical literacy was the objective of the literacy movement in our country. The point of education was to know God. To not speculate about what God thinks or says, but to really read what he said, to objectively come to know what he said. So the hope is education only in, if, in and as much as we're Deuteronomy 6, 5, committing these things that God's given us to our children and helping them see God in their lives through all that God has said. That's what the Bible be, views as education. And so the view that we were going to solve everything with education, hopefully we've seen just as one example of the possible human fleshly solutions is no solution. So what do you do? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to college. That's not the point. If you can serve God according to his word through a higher academic program, you should. If you can, you should. And it, but don't think that you have to get this coin of the realm of the diploma to serve God. It's not true. That's an illustration meant to point to the Lord Jesus. Our destiny is not in 
patents of nobility today, which are the new uh, diplomas, which are less and less valuable as our culture disintegrates. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming for us. And Paul takes us there back to Romans 8, 18. Paul says, considering the suffering with Jesus that we're called to suffer, which we will suffer, which Paul suffered, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so this is the, the New Testament rationale on suffering is think glory. When you suffer, think glory. These are inseparable uh, uh, topics. It isn't glorious that you're suffering. It's glory that you're suffering. It's suffering that you're going through toward glory. It isn't glory that you suffer. It's glory after you suffer. And that's Hebrews chapter 12, one through three. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He's looking out at what's coming. He's focused on the end of the matter, not the hardship we're going through now. The giving of birth gives you a beautiful baby at the end, but you have to go through the process. You have to go through the pain to get to the joy of that new baby. And that's what we're talking about when he says the glory that's coming, the glory that's coming far outstrips the suffering that we're going through now. Now, I want you to look at yourself for a second and ask if you can, can, can think of your suffering. Everyone here, just as sure as you're being held together by the gravitational forces of the power of God, holding all things together. Jesus, God, the Son, holds all things together by his powerful word. And that would therefore include gravity. That would include subatomic forces. We're talking about the physical realm. We're talking about the miraculous in the natural just as sure as you're sitting here, weighed down by the forces that hold you together physically, without which you would disintegrate, and so would everything else. In other words, I'm arguing from the principle that something exists rather than not. There's a creator who makes it so. Just as sure as you're sitting here at his pleasure, that you have your existence because of him, you are suffering. You have health challenges. You have interpersonal struggles. You have things that you've done to yourselves and you hurt for them. And you've told God about it and you've confessed it. And you've said like David, I've sinned. And he said, I forgive you. And then he said to David, and the sword will not depart from your house. And you're facing the consequences of personal sin in your life as you trust in God. And it hurts. Some of you are facing things that you haven't done to yourselves. God alone did them to you, as it were. You're facing challenges and trials that you cannot honestly draw a line between your bad decisions and this thing happening to you. And you're asking God, help me see what I've done. Am I out of line? Is there some change I need to make? How can you uh, get hold of me so that we make this go away? And you have to conclude, I am walking with God. I'm trusting in God. And I don't believe that the suffering that I'm enduring is because of bad choices that I've made. I'm being objective and honest here. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've made mistakes. But honestly, I don't think I've done this to myself. The Bible speaks a lot about such a case. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12 is about that, the thorn in the flesh. Paul says, God tormented me with this thorn in the flesh 
because he wanted me to keep from exalting myself. He's constantly keeping me at bay because I'll be arrogant about all the things God has done with me if he doesn't hold me down. That's, that's 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. God says to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, Job in the story is a sinful person like all of us, but he's a righteous man because he's a believer and he follows God. And he's the most righteous man in the world in his time, perhaps, the way the, the story set up in Job. And yet God allows Satan to take and harm Job and take his family and take his wealth and take his health. You're suffering. And in many cases, you don't know why. You just know God is because he told you. And you know that it says he's good, but I'm hurting and this is bad. Let the answer of the scriptures wash over you and put your suffering in its place. Because you cannot handle the challenges God is bringing into your life without his perspective that he would give you. And the solution is, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he does something that echoes every experience, every one of our experiences, touches on us in a, in a way that is undeniable. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. I like to watch the weather radar. Very interesting summer we've just had. No wind blew and took out the power where I lived for the first time in a long time. It's like the wind blows up here because there's the remnants of, of, of the pieces of the little fragments of a tropical storm and it blows on Eversource a little bit where we live. You lose power for a week. You know how that is. We didn't have any tropical storms make it up here. And I watch the radar. I go to Weather Channel app and I tap on the radar and I zoom out and see what's going on in the world. And, uh, and it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's helpful. And what I see is that there may be some tropical storms coming. And those tropical storms that become hurricanes that kill thousands and thousands of people are the anxious longing of the creation waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Just like you're waiting for Jesus to come solve your problem ultimately and your resurrection, your separation eternally from sin, you're free from its power, but you're not free from its presence. And we need Jesus to save us in that sense. And that's the resurrection that is coming. It is our hope. Just like you're waiting for Jesus, the son of God, to come rescue you, the creation is waiting for its freedom to corruption from the sons of God. And in context, and this is the part that just blows my mind that we're not conscious of, and it's so clear in Romans 8, verse 19, you are the sons of God. Because we've read Romans 8, 14 through 17. The people in context that he's talking about are you. It's not that the angels show up and fix the creation. It's you the sons of God, the children of God who are heirs with Christ. The coming kingdom, which will be over all of God's earthly creation, is going to resolve all of the cursed problems of this planet. And the part that Paul adds to that statement is that you're involved. The revelation of you as the sons of God, you're not revealed right now. Chicken Little is ruling the world right now. The sky has always been falling. The natural environment has always been in great jeopardy. And somebody's always been able to squawk and tell us that if we don't do something, 
that ultimately plays to the loss of freedom for the masses and the gaining of material wealth for a few. If we don't give the power over to the centralized world government or whatever, we're going to lose our world. Chicken, chicken little, the sky is falling. Everybody's making their decisions based on fear. And if you don't join the world in its, in its psychotic fear, then you're uh, somehow a science denier. Then you're ridiculed and castigated as someone who, um, who doesn't toe the line of all the things that we know because we've been educated. Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, what's the guy, Harari? All these people with their great ideas about how we're going to solve the problems of the world, we're going to float our giant yachts and fly our, our carbon-emitting airplanes to, uh, to, to, to get together to tell the rest of the world how they need to not eat beef and, um, and not have electricity in their homes is ultimately where it's going to go. The Gavin Newsom's of the world that will help you set your thermostat to 78 degrees in your home. At that point, I'm like, what's the point? We'll just go outside. These people are not going to solve the problems that are part of the cursed world. The world is under a curse. It's the curse of the ground from Genesis 3. God put it under a curse, and, then, and, and the solution is your revelation to it. And that's something God is going to do by and by. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility and waste, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's God put it under the curse with hope, with an expectation of what would come when he removed the curse. And the hope is this, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's, it's like this. It's like when God presents the body of Christ in this passage, the sons of God, when he reveals them as the bride of Christ is revealed, perhaps. That is attended with a massive fireworks display of God removing the curse from the ground. It's as though the curtains that come open to reveal us are the removal of the curse on the earth. And we're back to the Garden of Eden. We're back to God's original creation without its corruption. And Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, we also ourselves, back to our suffering, we aren't really suffering the earth's earthquakes unless they directly touch us. Some of us have been affected by earthquake. But there are earthquakes in your life. There are, there are tsunamis of soul where you can't think about anything but the horrible situation that you're dealing with from family, friends, coworkers, bosses, governments, all the sources of the hardships and the troubles, even your own health when your body turns against you. Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, our huiothesia, our adoption, our being appointed as sons, which is the redemption of our body. I've been pushing and pushing this morning to Romans eight twenty three. Because earlier he says, you've already got the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the first fruits of the spirit. It's your position in Christ and the blessings that come with it. But the fullness of adoption, the fullness of being established as functioning 
representatives of God and his agenda, the ultimate expression is in your resurrection body when we are presented to planet earth. We are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So adoption, the biblical doctrine of adoption, even in Romans 8, is a now in position looking forward to what's coming in its fullness and experience. So what are you? You're a work in progress. What are you? You're somebody that's been marked out for rulership. What are you? You're somebody with a glorious destiny that needs to be in front of you at least as much as the hardship that you're facing. The reason for New Testament eschatology, I am convinced, is not so that we can be prophecy hounds and predict what's going to happen based on the newspaper. The newspaper is very interesting right now for many reasons. And I think it's vital to know what's coming. But we can paint some pretty broad strokes and kind of summarize. Civilization is going to collapse. The world is going to embrace a false Messiah. Israel is going to say he's the one. The people that resist that idolatry are going to be beheaded for their testimony for Christ or they're going to survive through a horrible time of tribulation. That's where the world is going. That's where the world you live in right now is headed. So watch your politics, pay attention to the news, and that, but that's where the kingdom of the earth are tending. But what's your destiny? Your destiny is not to suffer the wrath of God on the earth dwellers. It's not, read what the Bible says about the tribulation. It's the wrath of God. You are not reserved for wrath. You're the sons of God. You're the heirs with Christ. You are going to rule with him. That's your destiny. So it needs to be more real to you and me than it probably is. We need to pay more attention to it than we do. We need to know who we are based on our so great salvation and so not neglect it. We need to check ourselves daily for gratitude. Am I overflowing with gratitude for my so great salvation? Am I aware of what God has said about me? Is it real to me? Am I living in light of the truth of God's call on my life? Or am I hung up in the distractions of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, if you will? Am I after the things that satisfy my little worldly, earthly appetites such that I'm distracted from the truth that I'm marked out for greatness, but I have to grow? Yesterday with the gentleman, we talked about the wonderful challenge Peter gives us in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, to long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babies. I'd like to close this morning by reading you one of the three pictures of that which was lost and found in Luke 15. If you are the sons of God, and if you have this new life, and you have been marked out to inherit with Christ, then you need to resonate with the attitude of your father. In Luke chapter 15, the story is, the, the stage is set for three parables telling the same message with verses one through three. Luke writes, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. To understand the interpretation of the parable, you have to listen to what the author says and let him define the, the context. There are two groups 
that are in view as Luke sets up the prodigal son. The first group are the tax collectors and sinners that are coming to Jesus. The second group are the religious crowd, the scribes and Pharisees, who are grumbling that Jesus receives these sinners. It's the two groups. It's the lascivious, lawless crowd that need a savior. And it's the morally degenerate, self-righteous crowd that need a savior. The first group of sinners don't know God the Father, but they want to. The second group don't know God the Father, but they think they do. And in this parable, we're supposed to come to know what God thinks about the tax collectors and sinners and how far apart his attitude is from what the Pharisees and scribes think. So in verse 11, Jesus said, a man had two sons. We already know the interpretation of the parable. It's the tax collectors and sinners versus the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. You could see it. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. One theory of cultural interpretation from the time which is speaking is perhaps he's breaching something that you would never do and saying, give me my inheritance as though you're already dead. And that would be true in our culture too. Whatever you have of your wealth, give to me half of it. Give to me my portion that you would give, confer upon your death. So it's a pretty awful insult. But the father did it. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his ease with loose living, his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Context, Jesus is speaking to scribes and Pharisees. And now we're talking about eating unclean animals or tending unclean animals among people that eat the unclean animals in a kosher conversation. So it's, it's as bad as it gets the way Jesus tells the story. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. So you're pretty low when you want as a Jewish kosher person to eat pig slop. Not pigs, but pig slop. That's what I need. But when he came to his senses, which is our favorite part of the whole thing, when he came to himself literally, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. It's better be a, to be a slave in my father's household than to be a free man here with the pig slop. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, he rehearses his little speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I'm not asserting the full rights of sonship. I just want to come in out of the rain. Let me have something of you is the request. I don't deserve to be your son, but let me have something of you where at least you have your, your, your curtain of protection spread over me. I'll be in your household, but I won't be your son. I had the rights of sonship. I forsook it, but at least let me have something of the relationship that comes with you. Now, this is the attitude Jesus is portraying of these men coming to Jesus to have a relationship with the Father. This is their attitude. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve 
what God is going to extend to them. And this is the attitude for us with every step we take in terms of the gospel. We have received so much that we could never earn or deserve, and we are trophies of God's grace. So the man got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was a long way off, the father saw him. Thank you, Dr. Pentecost, for pointing out that this part of the story shows you the attitude of the longing father. In fact, he called this the parable of the longing father. The boy is a long way off and the father sees him. Why? Because he knows the route of ingress back home. He knows the way. And he knows where to stand on the property to see the farthest way off to look for that boy to come home. Because the light is on, because dad wants his son, because he wants him to come back. Who is the father? The squandering son or the tax collectors and sinners? The other son that's going to have his nose out of joint are the, the scribes and Pharisees. Who is the father? That's the father. And these self-righteous people that think they know God do not know God. They don't know that he's wanting those sinners to come back, to come to him, to, to seek that relationship with him. But he has to, but he's poor, but he's, he's a fair weather Christian, but he's, he's under, he's suffering. And so he comes back because it goes bad for him. We'll take it. Yeah, sometimes the, the, the storm clouds are, are on the horizon because God is seeking to bring us back. And sometimes that spanking we get is God's grace to get us back on the path. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And if the Pharisees are not tracking, they're probably thinking, that's just like what Jesus is doing with these tax collectors and sinners. And here's the question. Do you measure Jesus by your morality or do you get your morality from him? Do you measure God's acts by your sense of right and wrong? Or do you derive your sense of right and wrong and calibrate your conscience by God's word? Well, Jesus is over there doing that. Yeah, you should join him. But I would have to change. I would have to think differently. I would have to completely redefine myself and be somebody completely different than I am. Go for it. I think you're starting to mark out the nature of the problem and so hit your knees and ask him to save you. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, it doesn't show it in the text, but if you read earlier up, up in verse 17 and 18, when he practices his little speech, he doesn't get to say I'm no longer worthy to be uh, called a son in your sight. He just says, I've, uh, he doesn't get to say, let me be a hired hand, I mean. He says half of his speech, and then his father stops him at the point of confession. He doesn't let his son judge himself to the point where the son consigns himself to being a slave in the father's house. You don't get to make that decision. But he confesses his sin, absolutely. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand 
and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now that is a picture of adoption. He said, make me a slave. He's the father's child born in the household. He is the son of this father. He says, I've renounced my role, my, my position as son, so make me a slave. His father reestablishes him as the heir. That's the picture. And that's Quiotesia. That is sonship. You want to give good gifts to your kids, but you're not better than God. The explanation the father gives for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. The parable in its judgment now is not against the tax collectors and sinners. Verses 25 through the end of the chapter are the judgment on the self-righteous Pharisees. You might know that the younger brother, or, uh, the, old, the older brother has a real problem with the party we're having for my brother. Verse 30, I'll just summarize. When the son of yours came, who, was de- who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And now we hear the heart of God the Father about sinners. You and me. He said to him, son, you have always been with me. All that I have is mine. All that, all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Your father in heaven rejoices at you being his child. And the problem of the Pharisees, the problem of the self-righteous, is that we don't think like God. He is the one who is actually righteous. And being perfectly, infinitely righteous, Jesus Christ is going after these tax collectors and sinners and associating with them to bring them to the Father. They're not off limits, and neither were you. What are we doing here? We're seeking to know God our Father. Do not cringe as you approach the throne of grace. Go boldly before the throne of grace because it is your duty. We're commanded to because you have the Son. Our Father, we, pr- we bless you and praise you for our inheritance in Christ, for the designation of heir, sons of God, adopted for your purposes to rule with you, with your Son forever. Father, we acknowledge that you had a mission from eternity past. In one phase of it, you sent your son to die for our sins on the cross. And it is those works that Jesus did to bring us to glory that you continue to use us for. We are sharing the message in the aftermath of the cross of the most important thing that's ever happened. Father, if there's anyone here or in the hearing of my voice who hasn't trusted in Jesus as Savior, who hasn't received this life and the knowledge of God the Father through personal faith in Christ, Father, make this issue real to them that they must trust in Jesus as their Savior from their sins, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead, that you sent your Son because you loved them, and Jesus gave himself for us because he loved us. Father, we thank you for our so great salvation and this great love you've shown us. Help us adopt the attitude that you have. Father, there are areas where we think we aren't self-righteous, where we've said we're not part of that and we don't see how the message attends to us. Break through that. We want, clear, we want truth. We want you to give us wisdom in the inner man as David prays. Let us see ourselves. And Father, if there is any of that remnant of arrogance or bitterness or self-righteousness or, or desire to chase after the tax collectors and sinners problem of the flesh, 
of, of, uh, of just satisfying lust. Father, in all cases, let us see the glory and the beauty of your son. Give us a different appetite. Help us want the things that you want and love the things that you love. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.